Good morning, and welcome back to our series on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've been uh, studying Nehemiah for a few uh, weeks now, um, in and out with some other series on the way, uh, but I want to give you a quick recap, just in case some of you haven't been here as we've been working our way through it. Nehemiah was an exiled Jew living in Persia around 445 BC. He worked in a pretty senior position. He was a trusted official of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And one day, he was approached by a fellow Jew who told him about the appalling situation in Jerusalem. Waves of exiles had begun to return, but they were living in terrible conditions, and the city walls and gates were broken down, allowing Israel's enemies to just come and go as they pleased. Distressed by the fate of his people, Nehemiah cried out to God, who responded to him by calling him to go to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. Isn't it interesting how God often makes us the solution to the issues that he stirs us to feel passionate about? Perhaps God is calling you today to be the answer to the injustice that you feel so strongly about. Who knows what lives will be changed when you respond to that voice inside you? When you channel your frustration that you feel into action. And we love that kind of stuff here. Nehemiah's response to God was dramatic. He dared to raise his concerns with the king. Doing that could have cost him his life. And then he left his comfortable position in the royal household to become the leader of the team that would rebuild the walls. He became the leading part to the solution of the issue that God had brought to his attention. We've reached chapter 4, and Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. He surveyed the damage to the walls, and he's met with the exiles. He's envisioned them, that God is in this. He has a plan. Just like we heard about prophetically this morning, he has a plan. And he's with them in it. And he's told them that he has the support of the king as well to do this. And now they have begun to rebuild the walls. But as you can imagine, the exile's enemies, long used to having their own way over this people, they've reacted. And it's not looking good. We're actually first introduced to Nehemiah's two main protagonists when he first arrived in Jerusalem back in chapter 2. Take a look at verse 9 with me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sanballat and Tobiah were to become Nehemiah's arch enemies. According to ancient documents from the time, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah was a representative of a powerful family dynasty that was heavily involved in regional politics and was known for its corruption. 
The phrase Ammonite servant is actually believed by experts to be somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Tobiah was a man of high office, and he had important influence in that region. These two power mongers were not happy that anyone was treading on their turf. And when they heard about Nehemiah's plans, they were definitely not impressed. Take a look at verse 19. When Samballat, Tobiah, and another guy, Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Whenever we are about God's work, there will be a reaction. And often, it won't be good. There are already powers at work in the turf that we are taking. And they aren't happy to be removed. We have an enemy who is determined to stop God's plans by thwarting and undermining the work of his people. God is at work today. He has been challenging and stirring so many of us here to reach out, to get intentional about engaging with the community, serving our neighbors, loving them, and helping them to discover the love that Christ has shown to us. He's also been speaking to us prophetically, even this morning, even this morning, encouraging us to press into him, increasing our expectation that we are on the edge of something new. So we must not be surprised if there is a reaction. We aren't living in a neutral setting. Let me give you an example from Turkey. Over the past few years, we have seen the gospel make remarkable progress. From just a few tens of believers a decade or so ago, there are now many thousands of Christ followers in Turkey. Turks have been coming to Christ through incredible visions and dreams of Jesus. Many have also found faith through the response of the love and care shown to them by Christian believers. But alongside these accounts, we have, that we've heard of local Turks just showing up at their church services and saying, I've had this vision, what do I do? Can you tell me about this Jesus? There has been a violent reaction. Believers have been imprisoned, visas have been denied or cancelled, church leaders that have served their tiny congregations faithfully for many years, pastors that love the people of Turkey have been expelled from the country with no notice and no opportunity to get their affairs in orders. Reading about their stories is like turning the pages of the book of Acts. God's actions are incredible, but the opposition is very real. Nehemiah faced tough opposition. His enemies were obviously political. They did not want this man to motivate and strengthen a defeated and defenseless enemy. They had a strong power base and they wanted to keep it just as it was. But Nehemiah was also in a spiritual battle. There's a bigger war being described here. Nehemiah's story points to something much greater and even more important. If you open your Bible, you will find Nehemiah in the middle of the Old Testament, but chronologically, it's at the end. 
It gives us the last glimpse of Old Testament history before the long silence that precedes the coming of Jesus. And it's a critical foundation for the circumstances God had revealed through his prophets centuries before, the ushering in of a greater Nehemiah to save his people. Throughout their long exile years, the Israelites had held on to the words of the prophets that they would eventually be restored. And some of these prophecies were really specific. If anyone here this morning doubts that God is clear about his intentions, here's a snippet of what the prophet Isaiah says in a prophecy, naming Cyrus the Great as the one through whom he would restore post-exilic Jerusalem. Take a look at Isaiah 44. He's speaking of Cyrus. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. Speaking of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus was the king of Persia, we're told about in the book of Ezra, who immediately preceded Nehemiah. And it's actually part of the same book in the Hebrew Bible. Ezra said about the whole rebuilding program and the exile return from Babylon to Jerusalem under Cyrus's blessing. So Nehemiah isn't just a story about a brave and dynamic leader inspiring a broken down people to rebuild their city with burnt and damaged stones. It is that. But it's also part of something much greater In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was not just the ancient city, but prophetically it was also a sign pointing to something much bigger yet to come. Kathy Keller, writing about how Nehemiah's actions fit in this bigger story, joined the dots for us in this way. Without a secure wall to defend the people from predatory raiders and surrounding powerful nations, there would be no permanent restoration of Israelite culture. Their heritage and way of life would cease. They would be assimilated into the surrounding cultures. The law and the word of God would be forgotten. As the remnant intermarried, they would all just go away. There would be no more Israelite nation to bring forth God's Messiah. So the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of Jerusalem were not just part of a normal longing for a national homeland. They were key ingredients in God's redemptive plan for the world because the Messiah was to come out of the Israelite nation. But there wasn't an Israelite nation anymore and there was never going to be one unless this rebuilding took place. The stakes were really high for Nehemiah, but not just for him and his generation, for the whole of mankind. So it is not surprising that the enemy rose up to try and stop this work in such a dramatic way. We are part of that same larger narrative And the same enemy is at work today. We aren't building a physical city from burnt stones, but we are, as Peter puts it, living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And we're on a mission to recover those stones that have been lost. We're on a mission to bring together and bring back those who are far from God. The broken, the damaged, the marginalized, and the rejected. What a beautiful metaphor those burnt stones give us 
of the broken and damaged that we're reaching out to. These are the very ones that God has chosen for his city walls to transform into living stones. In this work, our struggle isn't against individual people like Sambalat and Tobiah. But as the Apostle Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have a spiritual enemy who schemes to frustrate God's work in our lives and in our worlds. He is desperate to stop those burnt stones from being brought back to life. Like Nehemiah's enemy, our enemy is evil and destructive in his attempts to stop us. But he's not very original. He still appeals to the same schemes that Nehemiah faced. Humans have progressed. We've become much more sophisticated in so many ways. But yet the same schemes Nehemiah's enemies used against him remain effective today. That's because for all our progress, our fundamental nature hasn't changed at all. I want to touch on four of those schemes this morning. If we can understand something of how the enemy works, we can stand against his schemes. And as Paul says in the very next verse, withstand the evil and having done all to stand. We can take the enemy's ground, partnering with Jesus to restore those burnt and damaged lives that God has called us to reach out to. The first scheme I want to touch on is mockery. When Sambalat and Tobiah first discovered Nehemiah's plans, they were unhappy. And they showed their displeasure by making fun of him. But this seeming indifferent behavior turned much more sinister once they realized that Nehemiah was actually doing what he had said he was going to. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said, in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it all for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of these heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Sam Ballat and Tobiah were furious. Nehemiah was daring to actually move forward with his plans. And they could see the results in front of them. The gaps in the wall were getting smaller. The people were working together to restore the city. So they ramped up their mockery big time. It became a deliberate form of attack. As Terry Virgo said when he preached on Nehemiah at Downs Bible Week, this wasn't careless, haphazardly poking fun at Nehemiah. This mockery was designed to undermine him and the people themselves, robbing them of their pride and their confidence. It is so hard to handle being mocked when it's by those that have influence over us, especially the in crowd. 
How much we long to belong, to be accepted by those that we look up to, whether that's family, friends, co-workers. Maybe it's a non-believing but very successful co-worker or boss or a family member or an influential school colleague. They always seem to mock us right at the moment when we have summed up our courage to share our faith with them. And man, does that hurt. Mockery can take us right out of the game. Thoughts of mission go out the window when we feel the pain of humor at our expense, vowing we will never expose ourselves in that way again. But we can't avoid mockery especially when we tell people that we are followers of Jesus. That's because, Paul says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed to destruction. When we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say, it's nonsense. The gospel is a stumbling block. It's foolishness to the natural man. So it is going to generate a response. It's designed to. So we'd better get used to it when people react to us. Some will, of course, and wonderfully react positively. But many will react negatively with mockery because to them, it's nonsense. But oh, how we hate to be mocked. We hate to be ridiculed. I know I do. I like to be honored and received well. I like it when my credentials are recognized and given due credit. I used to have a senior position at a multinational corporation. I traveled a lot, and I would be asked about my position by customs officers when I was sort of going in and out of countries. And I liked that because I felt important. I felt recognized. How that changed when I left that world to become a church pastor. Now when I'm asked about my position and I tell them I'm a pastor, I can almost feel the air going out of the room. Just the look is enough. I can almost hear them thinking, why would anyone want to be a pastor? People still do that. You left a real job to do that? Now, our culture used to value and honor pastors, but not anymore. According to surveys, I think it sees us somewhere below used car salesmen (laughs) or tax examiners or maybe even politicians. Unfortunately for me, and I'm sure for many of us here, mockery is a really effective weapon. It searches us out and it quickly gets to the heart of our motivation. It exposes our pride. John Piper calls it the itch of self-regard. And it's not going anywhere, so we'd better get used to it. If you are mocked and you feel that need to respond, that need to vindicate yourself or to retaliate, that is just ugly pride at work in your heart. And the only effective way to deal with pride is to kill it off at the root. Take it to Jesus. Lay it down at his feet. 
Remain true to your convictions. Resist that urge to retaliate. Oh my goodness, it is so hard because I have just the words to say. (laughs) Don't vindicate yourself. Do what Nehemiah did. He didn't justify himself or push back. He got on with building the wall. Let's be those that do the same. Let's let our lives shine. Let God's fruit be seen in your life. Choose not to be offended. Don't even entertain it and don't debate with the mocker. The wall will be the proof. It will be God's work in your life that will speak for itself. And as you do that, you'll be confronting and overcoming pride, putting it to death so the mockery itself becomes less and less effective against you. And I think I must add this as well. Please make sure you are not one of the mockers. Don't let yourself become part of that in crowd who find it cool to ridicule others, whatever their views, especially on social media. Just this last week, former US President Barack Obama challenged young people with the following words. I get a sense among certain young people on social media that the way of making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. If I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel very good about myself because, man, did you see how woke I was? I called you out. That's enough. If all you are doing is casting stones, you are probably not going to get very far. It is so easy to undermine each other when we lob thoughtless, mocking posts across the virtual world. Please don't let that be you. Mockery didn't work. Nehemiah just steeled himself to keep building, so his enemies changed tack. They sought to undermine his work with a second scheme, trying to make Nehemiah compromise. Sidling up to him, they appealed to him to be reasonable. Take a look at chapter 6. We'll begin at the first verse. Now, when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I'd not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem this time sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together. But they intended to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Let's talk about it, they said. Don't take this stuff too seriously. You don't have to be quite so radically sold out to the kingdom of God. This is exactly how my parents reacted when I became a Christian 35 years ago. It's just a phase, they said. What do you mean it's going to affect who you marry, where you live, what your job is? They encouraged me to tone it down. Make it a little bit more palatable. Now, I have to admit, in my new believer zeal, 
I did push things a little bit far with them. <laughs> but beneath their encouragement for me to be reasonable lay a spiritual appeal by the enemy to compromise. And why? Nehemiah tells us, because the enemy intends to do us harm. Now, my parents didn't want to harm me, anything but. But there's an enemy at work behind the scenes here, often using the appealing and reasonable words of good people, especially those close to us, to deliver his insidious message. We need to be wise to the words of compromise especially when delivered through an unsuspecting friend. Nehemiah's response was strong and clear. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Nehemiah's response points to an even greater work, that of Jesus on the cross. As he hung on the cross, the people mocked him and challenged him to come down. But he refused to compromise his mission. He stayed on that cross until he was able to declare, it is finished. The work of salvation was complete. Nehemiah refused to compromise and risked his life for his people. Jesus refused to compromise and he gave his life for us. So let's not be those that compromise and give up. But let's be those that like told the Philippians, press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us so that we might win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Don't compromise the call of God on your life. Hold fast to your vision. That's my appeal to you this morning. Be selective who you share your deep inner passions with. Don't allow others to tempt you to give up on your call. You are about a great work and you can't come down. Compromise didn't work. Nehemiah was about too great a work to respond. So Sanballat turned to a scheme which really hasn't changed much at all over the last two and a half thousand years. If anything, it's even more prevalent today. Take a look at verse eight, verse five, sorry. Sanballat sent his servant to me with an open letter. In it was written, it is reported among the nations that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king, the real king, will hear these reports. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you have said has been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. That's fake news. <laughs> Nehemiah had to deal with fake news. It's so interesting. These things don't change. Look at what it says. It is reported among the nations. According to these reports, Sambala is making it up. He's lying. These are anonymous statements. They have no support. They carry, therefore, no weight. That's why Nehemiah treated them the way he did. He called them out for what they were, inventions of your own mind. 
Unfortunately, we live in a world where fake news is undermining constructive debate and discussion in our culture. Much of what we read and engage in on social media, as well, unfortunately, as some of the broader media, is unsubstantiated nonsense. Democratization of news made possible by the internet and that insatiable need for 24-hour news stations to compete for audiences has led to a proliferation of fake news. Even the Weather Channel has gotten in on the act. Have you noticed how the size and impact of storms always seems to lessen as we get closer to them? Five days out, it's going to be a monster. So we make plans to head to the ski slopes to take full advantage of Snowmageddon. Only to discover by the, by the time of the storm, the 30 inches promised has turned into three. Now, I know they need to ensure that we plan for the worst, but if they keep doing it, it sounds an awful lot like the boy who cried wolf. While the democratization of news has given us access to virtually limitless information, so much of it is actually unfiltered, biased opinion, making it difficult to establish what is real and what is spin. And this has resulted in a really bad outcome. A very recent Pew study in September found that 73% of us believe that voters in different parties not only disagree over plans and policies, but also cannot agree on the basic facts. Nearly three-quarters of the population have decided that they can't trust any of the so-called facts presented by someone they don't agree with. The dominance of fake news has undermined the very basis of constructive debate. There's a huge problem with this, and this is why the enemy loves to exploit it. Even when something is exposed as a lie, if the lie is revealed by someone on the other side of the argument from us, very few of us will actually change our position on the subject. It's so much easier just to believe the lie that supports our current position. Folks, that cannot be us. We are a people of the truth. Nehemiah recognized the lie and called it out for what it was. It was nonsense. We must rise above this too. The New Living Translation um, of Proverbs 18 verse 13 puts it rather bluntly. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. How do we deal with this? May I humbly suggest three things. First, get educated. Learn to spot the fake from the real. Don't be so offended by the messenger that you miss the message. Don't fall into the trap of believing everything your tribe says without checking it out. Second, never do anything that undermines your integrity. We are called to be salt and light in the world. 
In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said to let that light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. People may be able to challenge your views, but they should never be able to challenge the works that display your integrity. And third, win the person, not the argument. We are about a great work. Our enemy is not the person who disagrees with us. He or she are the ones we're trying to reach. Our goal, our ultimate goal must never be to win the argument, but rather to win the person. God has many people across the seacoast that are far away from him today. They are the burnt stones he's calling us to unearth so they can become part of the walls of his city. This will be so much harder if we're the ones that perpetuate false news, fake news. Refuse to be part of the problem. Call it out for what it is and let your words and deeds demonstrate your integrity and your authenticity. And finally... Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 10. When I went into the house of Shehemiah, who was confined to his home, he said, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, so I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. When other schemes fail, the enemy often turns to one of his nastiest weapons, Sowing fear in our hearts. In Nehemiah's case, fear for his life. A fear made even more compelling because it was communicated by his own people who had been paid to betray him. That's nasty stuff. We need to be wise people. The enemy of our souls does not play fair, he's not satisfied with a draw. He wants you out of the game. But Nehemiah does not let the enemy get a foothold in his life, nor his mission, even when confronted by circumstances that I am sure would provoke fear in each of us. He didn't fear his enemy because he was standing on a much stronger foundation. His fear of the Lord. This is something very, very different from the fear of man. There's a story told about church father John Chrysostom, and I can never pronounce his name, so if I got it wrong, I apologize, who was Bishop of Constantinople, I can pronounce that one, uh, around AD 400. Apparently, the emperor was so fed up with his pointed preaching, he threatened him with exile unless he changed his message. John, I can do John. John reportedly replied, You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Then I will take away all your treasure. You cannot 
for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. Then I will drive you away from all the people in this world and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. Then I will kill you. You cannot, since my life is hidden with Christ in God. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. In his exchange, he expressed a similar reaction to Nehemiah. It's God I fear, not man. Fear of the Lord overcomes the fear of man. Reformer Martin Luther distinguished between the fear of man, which he called servile fear, from fear of the Lord, which he describes as filial fear. Paige Brown explains the critical difference. Servile fear is the dread and terror a prisoner in a torture chamber feels towards his tormentor. Filial fear is family fear. It is the love and adoration of a child towards his father, whom he so desperately wants to please. He feels fear, not because of any dread or terror of punishment, but because he is eager to avoid displeasing or offending that one who is the source of his security and love. The enemy wants to sow thoughts of terror and dread in your life. God inspires love and devotion that compels us to action. For Christostom, that was to keep on delivering his pointed preaches, regardless of the emperor. For Nehemiah, it was to keep on building the wall. We can learn a lot from Nehemiah's response. Should a man such as I, should a people such as us run away? This isn't arrogance. This is our destiny in God. In closing this morning, I want to challenge and encourage us I know there are people here facing very, very real crises. But even in the most desperate of situations, when the never-ending darkening clouds of fear threaten to rush across your life, God is trustworthy. He has you. You can stand firm in him. You belong to him. You were bought with a price. You were chosen and called by name. Christ has laid hold of you for his eternal purposes. And the enemy cannot thwart that. Every believer is a called person. Every one of us. We are committed to a glorious eternal destiny in Christ. We are about a great work. But you know, it's not really about us. It's about him at work in us. So brothers and sisters, let's take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. Let's not let mockery, compromise, lies, or fears distract us from our secure destiny in him. Nehemiah faced an enemy who fought strongly to prevent the Israelites from rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem. But he prevailed. The greater Nehemiah, Jesus, said, in this world you will have trouble. So we can expect those troubles. But he also told us to take heart 
because he has overcome the world. We serve and worship a saviour who overcame the world for us.